talk about Abraham the prophet today, and we're going to talk about um, prophets generally, and then we'll probably get into the birth of Isaac, okay? Um, but in, at the end of chapter 20, Abraham gets called a prophet for the first time. This is actually the first time in the Bible, um, if you started in you know, Genesis 1, this is the first time that the word prophet appears. And I want us to think a little bit about uh, what it means to be a prophet for Abraham. And then we'll also try to explore a little bit here, too. Um, what does that have to do with us? Um, is pro- are prophets something that, you know, have kind of come and gone? Or is there still a place for prophets in the world? And uh, we'll, we'll discuss that. But if you look in uh, chapter 20... This is the account of um, Abraham and Abimelech. Those of you who were here last week, we talked about this, right? Very similar to the story of Abraham and Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh tries to take Abraham's wife, Sarah. At that time, she had a different name, Sarai. And uh, now Abimelech tries the same stunt. Apparently, kings in the ancient world, this this is just what they did, okay? You like a woman, you just take her. That's what you do. If you're a king, you, what do they, there was some, um, in the Middle Ages, prima nocte or something like that, there was some law that the king could just take your wife if he wanted her. He'd give her back to you, um, but he took her, <laughs> weird, weird stuff, right? Um, but in any case, that's what, uh, Abimelech tries the same stunt, and God comes to him in a dream. Look what God says to him in verse, uh, verse 3. This is what we want the Lord to do to all tyrants, okay? Uh, Abimelech is a kind of a tyrant. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you're a dead man, okay? We want tyrants to get visited by God in dreams Um, because when God shows up in dreams to the tyrants, it shakes up their whole kingdom. What are some other examples of that? Other tyrants who have nightmares. Nebuchadnezzar, right? He dreams and he sees this great, beautiful tree, and it's him, and it gets chopped down. And I don't know, like a month later, he goes nuts, he goes crazy, he gets humbled, and he goes and he lives like an animal. What else? Nebuchadnezzar? Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh has his dreams about fat cows and skinny cows, and who eats who? Who eats whom? Skinny, the skinny cows eat the fat cows, and Pharaoh is troubled by this, okay? Um, are there other kings who have nightmares? Other kings who have nightmares, or people who have nightmares, for that matter? Saul, uh, which Saul? The king Saul? Because Saul, Paul Saul, he was bad too. Did he have bad dreams? He, w- he had like a troubled spirit, an evil spirit. I don't remember if he had dreams. You might be right. Pontius Pilate, Pilate's wife, right? Pilate's wife has this dream that, you know, you should let Jesus go. And of course, Pilate kind of tries, Pilate's the consummate politician. I wash my hands of him. You kill him, right? It's not, it's not really me doing it. It's up to, it's you who does it, okay? Um, but you see that over and over, these nightmares come, and uh, we're glad they don't come to us, but when they come to people who are oppressing God's people, it's a good thing. It's a good thing when tyrants get shaken up, okay? Uh, but it goes on here, and Abimelech kind of, you know, he, if you look down at verse um, 10, 
Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? You told me your wife is your sister, so I took her, you know, um, it's your fault. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So this is a story of how the fear of God comes to Abimelech, comes through a nightmare, it comes through him attacking Abraham's wife. When the serpent attacks the woman, he, gets, he bites off more than he can chew, you might put it that way, right? Um, did that happen to the devil too, by the way? Remember, what, what, who heard the first promise of the gospel? We call it the Protevangelium, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That's the first gospel promise. And who's it spoken to? The devil. (laughs) The devil attacks the woman. (laughs) Ha ha, I got her, right? And God comes in and says, I'm going to crush your head, right? Um, So this, this is another one of these things that occurs over and over. The wicked make their plans, but they, what does it say in Proverbs? They dig a pit and fall into it themselves. So Abimelech falls into his own pit, and it's a good pit to fall into, because now he's going to learn the fear of the Lord, okay? Um, And if you look on, he asks Abraham to pray for him. So skip down to verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Okay? So Abimelech's plan to take Sarah into his harem, um, to have children with her, that plan gets frustrated, but God gives him something better. He has to appeal to Abraham. He has to bless Abraham. And when he blesses Abraham, look at what the blessing is on his house. Everybody gets pregnant, which is a blessing, right? Um, Let's just remember that. When people are pregnant, it's a good thing, usually, right? Almost always in the Bible, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a good thing. Children are a gift. Um, But I skipped over where it says Abraham is a prophet. And let's get that. Chapter 20, verse 7. Who will read this verse for us? Just the one verse. Go ahead, Mike. Now then, return to man's wife, for he is a prophet, and that he he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you surely shall die, and you and all who are yours. Yeah, and the, the literal translation is, if it translated literally, it would be just like it was in the Garden of Eden. In the day that you eat of it, dying, you shall surely die. This is how Hebrew, um, and we've got to be a little familiar. You don't need to know Hebrew, but it's good to know kind of how the language works a little bit. The repetition, the double repetition of a word, that's how you really emphasize something. So dying, you will die. Dying, you, that's like you're definitely going to die. Okay? It's a double witness. God always sets up two witnesses. Um, That might be familiar to some of you on the basis of two or three witnesses, the truth gets established. And you can see that even in the the Hebrew grammar. Yes? 
Mm-hmm. Sarah's 90. Yep. Or he thought she was pretty and he, she could be like an ornament. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, apparently, she, Sarah had a blessing of, um, of, she wasn't blessed with fertility, but she was blessed with, as she aged, she was like Nita. She became more and more beautiful. Yeah. Um, the, other, the other possibility, so either uh, Catherine's question is why, you know, why would Abimelech desire her? It could be just the possibility, ooh, you know, I could have a, uh, more children with her. But I think you're probably on to something. If Abimelech wanted a fertile woman, he, there was probably plenty of others he could have taken. Okay? So maybe she was more beautiful than everybody else. It did tell us that back in chapter 12. That's why Pharaoh wanted her, because she was beautiful. The other possibility is um, that she was rich. Okay? Um, Abraham was wealthy. God had blessed him. And Sarah also was wealthy. Now, they didn't have um, joint bank accounts, right? So she, you know, when, when Abimelech looked at Abraham and Sarah, he would have seen wealth, which translates into honor, prestige, glory, right? Um, this is why Cal is on the lookout for a, a rich girl, right? Because um, you want the prestige that goes with wealth. So it could be, one, that would be my guess. Either she's pretty, even still at 90, or he sees her wealth. She, he sees that she's connected to Abraham, and there's something good about Abraham. He's got a lot of cattle. He seems really powerful. So if I can get his this woman out of his clan, then maybe some of that honor will be given to me as well. That seems to be the, the thought there. All right, why do we have this divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Of course, we are following, for lack of a better term, the New Testament. But why in the world is multiple marriages okay in the Old Testament? Well, it... Does God ever say, this is a good idea, marry lots of women? I think he pretty much said marry one woman and be done with it. Yeah. They didn't do that. Correct. So the, um, when Jesus gets asked about marriage, he always goes back to Eden. Have you not heard in the beginning he made the male and female? We just read that we had the wedding last night, the Hardig wedding. Um, so I just read this last night. It's fresh in my mind. In the beginning, he made the male and female. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, right? That establishes the principle of one woman and one man. If you're holding fast, right? If I'm holding fast to... (laughs) If I'm holding fast to my wife, we'll do it that way. If I'm holding fast to my wife, I can't hold fast to another woman. Okay? So the aberration is always polygamy. Taking multiple wives is always an aberration. It's always a sin. Um, now, God puts up with it, just like he puts up with lots of sin. 
He, he puts up with the failures of the patriarchs. He puts up with the failures of King David. He puts up with the failures of Solomon. He puts up with your sins, right? He doesn't just immediately say, hey, you screwed up once. Get out of my kingdom. And he has to kind of work with pretty rough material, doesn't he? So I, I wouldn't ever say um, that these things that are descriptive should be read as prescriptions, okay? You, you hear the difference there? These instances of multiple marriages are not prescriptions for us. Do this. Because if you read the stories, you'll find out that taking multiple wives is always a source of pain, okay? Um, it always backfires, so the prescription, if it was prescription, it would be the kind of prescription, my kids like this. We're watching a football game. Every ad is for prescription medicine, right? Every single ad. Maybe you could do diabetes differently. Sam and Jacob say, come up to me and say, Dad, what if we did diabetes differently? <laughs> I say, what if you just don't get it? Um, but they, they always love when it comes around to the fine print warning. Warning. Possible side effects include, and you know what their favorite one is. Death. Well, not death, but think, of, think like an eight and a 10-year-old. Their favorite one is diarrhea. Every, so if you take multiple wives, you're going to get diarrhea. Um, that's what the Old Testament teaches us. That clears it up for you, all right? Um, yeah, but uh, yes, you're, you are right. This is one of these things that always comes up. And if you just keep that, that difference between a description and a prescription in mind, I think that's a really a helpful uh, little thing. Because you come up to these sort of strange things, and you always got to scratch your head and say, is God saying we should do this? Or is this just describing what he had to work through? Um, there's, there's also this um, aspect of... Scripture and of kind of the totality of history, God is at work over time to bring us to maturity. And we'll talk about this with prophets in just a minute. Um, God is at work over time to bring kind of humanity generally to a more mature position. Um, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Were they supposed to stay in the garden forever? Or were they created to grow? They were created to grow, right? The, the whole point was not to just, hey, never leave the garden. Stay here forever. They, they, that was the nursery, right? They were like little babies. But the, the point was to grow up, to grow up to maturity. And if you take that kind of trajectory through the whole Bible, um, God is always at work to advance humanity, to bring us to maturity. I'm not talking in like a sci-fi, we're going on to, ev to evolve into, you know, whatever the next stage of humanity is. I mean it in the biblical way. God is at work to glorify his creatures. And that's part of Jesus's mission, is to glorify us, to bring us to maturity. So hopefully, you've seen this in your own life, Hopefully, right? Hopefully you are more mature now than you were when you were a brand new Christian. Whether that was when you were a baby and you were baptized or you came to faith later in life. Hopefully you've seen that God has caused some growth in your own life. And that also happens on a corporate kind of a level too. Okay? So some of these things have thankfully fallen away and we read about them and we think, how could anyone have ever thought to have multiple wives. 
Well, that's because we've, thankfully, God has matured humanity. Uh, but you look at other places where the gospel hasn't entered into a society, and what do you find? Polygamy, all kinds of stuff like it was in the time of Abraham. So the gospel advances not just individuals, but it also advance, advances a culture. It advances a, a whole society. Okay? Now, how did we get on that path? Oh, you asked me about wives, multiple wives. Go back to the prophet, this prophet business. Okay? What is the point of Abraham being a prophet here? Okay, that's usually sort of our default. This is the knee jerk. What do prophets do? They preach, right? They prophesy. And especially when we think about prophets and you hear someone is prophesying, what, is the, um, what do prophets talk about? The future, right? Paul said the end of the world or some future catastrophe. So we, we kind of knee jerk default position. And there's a reason why we think this, because that's part of what prophets do. We immediately think preachers, predictors of the future, right? But what does Abraham do here? What is the, the kind of job description? If you only have this verse for what a prophet is supposed to do, what is the role of Abraham as a prophet? He prays, okay? The prophet... has access, right? So God tells Abimelech, hey, you've got to go through my guy, Abraham. So um, the prophet is someone who has access to God. And part of what that means is God's going to tell him things, and then he's going to tell everybody else. He's the, the mouthpiece, okay? That's from one side, from God to the prophet to the rest of the world, but if you flip it around from the world to the prophet up to God, can you think of other prophets? Let's test our knowledge of the Bible. Can we think of other prophets who used their access to pray for the people? Don't, don't do Jesus yet. That's cheating. You're right, but you're always right when you say Jesus. So somebody else said, Moses, okay? Remember the story, the people, oh, we've been here at Mount Sinai for 40 days, and Moses, he disappeared. We better make our own calf. We better make our own gods. And Aaron's like, okay, good idea. So they make the golden calves, and God tells Moses, get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to burn them up, and I'm going to start over with you. Now, that sounds pretty attractive, doesn't it? I get to be... Put yourself in Moses' shoes. So you're saying you get rid of all of them? <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm just thinking like Moses. Get rid of all those Israelites that were given him problems. You can get rid of that um, stiff-necked people. You're not stiff-necked, are you, Kay? Um, God is telling Moses, I'm going to start over with you. That would be a high honor, high privilege. But what does Moses do instead? He says, forgive them, Lord, right? And if you won't forgive them, then kill me too. Put me to death with them. So this great intercession. Do we have other prophets who intercede for the people? Can you think of other examples of this? Say it louder. 
Samuel, yes. Samuel, when he makes the people a king, um, he reads them the riot act, and they all start to feel bad. Oh, maybe we shouldn't have asked for a king. Will you pray for us, Samuel? And Samuel says, yes, I'll keep praying for you, even though you frustrate the heck out of me. Um, pastor's translation of first, first Samuel. Okay? So we see it with Moses. We see it with Samuel. That should be enough to say there's something to this with the prophets. Um, you see it also with the prophet Jeremiah. Okay? One of the things that God tells Jeremiah is that he's not allowed to pray for the people anymore, which implies what? He, could before. he was. And God says, no, I'm, I've decided. Okay? So the prophet doesn't have power over God, but he does have access to God. It's kind of like um, if you're part of the council, you get to talk to the president. If you're on the, the president's cabinet, you have access to the president. You can influence what he thinks, what he says, what he does. He doesn't have to listen to you, but you can use that access for your people, right? And this is part of the role of a prophet, is to intercede for the people, okay? Now, um, this office of prophet, what are the other offices the official positions in the Old Testament that you know of. Okay, prophet, priest, and king. This is usually, um, who are the prophets, the priests? Who do we think of when we hear these words, Paul? Prophet, priest, and king. Yeah, that's what, that's what I've been emphasizing to you. This, have, have, has anyone else ever heard this three? Paul said it almost as if it was memorized. Prophet, priest, and king. Where do we memorize that? Catechism. It's, it's memorized in connection with Jesus. The Christ, the anointed one, is prophet, priest, and king. Okay? And you look back in the Old Testament, you see these three offices. Prophets, priests, and kings. And usually this is the order... I don't know why. I don't know who came up with it. Why isn't it king, priest, prophet? Well, it doesn't sound as nice. <laughs> prophet, priest, and king. Okay. I'm going to suggest to you that the order should be priest, king, and the best of all is to be a prophet. Um, the reason I suggest that to you, think of the history of Israel. What's the first, if, if you take these three chunks, who comes first in the, in the nation of Israel? They come out of Egypt, do they get a king? No. What do they get? Priests. The first chunk of the Bible, I'm talking about after the patriarchs, when Israel's established as a nation, they're ruled by priests. Now think about the job of a priest. The job of a priest is actually kind of easy. I'm not saying it's fun, but it's pretty easy. Okay, let's say Ben, if I'm the priest, Ben shows up to me, priest, I've got a problem. I think I have leprosy. It's pretty straightforward how you deal with that. You look up Leviticus 14 and you find out, yep, you've got issues. You've got a problem. Okay, um, Icy calls up her priest and says, I got this weird growth in my house. Can you come take a look at it? I come over to the house. Yep, that's leprosy. Okay, um, it's all written in the book. Now, when the people brought in the sacrifices, how did the priests know what to do? 
there's a heck of a lot of instructions. We call it the book of Leviticus, right? And that's the part that, oh, I was going to read the Bible this year, but now I got to all these rules about what to offer when and where and which part of the animal goes on the altar again. Well, if you're a priest, that's like your handbook. That's standard operating procedure. So being a priest, you kind of memorize the job pretty quickly. And if there's ever a question, let's consult the book. Oh, this is what we're supposed to do now. So first come the priests. Then who comes in the kind of narrative of the Bible, in the history of Israel? The kings, right? So first you get priests, then you get kings. Now, is it harder to be a king or easier to be a king? Harder. Because the people who come to you with problems when you're a king aren't asking you about leprosy. They're asking you things like, hey, last night this woman rolled over on her baby and suffocated her baby and then traded out the dead baby with my living. You remember this story? This is a story of a king, right? This, these two prostitutes come to King Solomon, and Solomon has to figure out who's the mother of the baby. This is the famous, well, we'll cut, her, we'll cut the baby in half, right? Now think about the difference between a priest and a king there. Priests can just look it up in the book. Leviticus 12, verse 19 says, first we offer the blood on the horns of the altar, then we put the meat on the altar, then we give you back the breast, okay? But the king can't say, uh, hold on, let me look up Deuteronomy 12 and figure out how to figure out who the mother of the baby is. What does a king need? Wisdom, right? So the king, the priests need obedience. The kings need wisdom. And it's only after the kings are around for a little while that you start to see prophets. Who are the famous prophets in the Bible? Elijah. Elijah. Elisha. These guys who are running around, preaching, doing all kinds of strange things, raising people from the dead, knocking down kings, lifting up other kings, right? So you go from simple obedience to wisdom, or I'm going to put wise rule, and then the prophet's job is really to influence everyone. The prophet's job is to destroy the old things and establish the new things. This is what we, why we usually think of prophets, well, they're going to talk about the end of the world, right? Or the end of a world. So Elijah destroys Ahab's kingdom. Ahab and Jezebel are Elijah's opponents. Elijah knocks them down, and then this guy named Jehu finishes the job. Jeremiah destroys the southern kingdom through his words, and he establishes the new kingdom. Okay? Jesus comes around. Does Jesus ever do this? Does Jesus say things that we're like, whoa, that's, he's like a doomsday prophet? Yeah. yeah. He says things like, we're going to rip down the temple, right? We're going to just, it's not one stone will be left on another. So the prophets are really the final stage. And the prophet's job is either, you could call it influence or um, they're world destroyers and world builders. Okay? Now, which of those is the most powerful? I think the prophets are the most powerful. Okay? This also, now maybe I'm totally 
out to lunch on this. I'm following some other um, teachers and commenters on this. But just think, I think there's real value in thinking priest, king, prophet. Think of your own life. You don't start off as a prophet. You, you've got to mature. Before you can uh, influence everybody with your words, you've got to start off as a priest. Right? You've got to start off with just following the rules. Right, Jameson? Clean your room. Eat your vegetables. Honor your father and your mother. Learn your lessons. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. And if you do that, what happens to you? What do you learn through the school of obedience? Learn responsibility, and you learn a little bit of wisdom. And then, even if you're not, you know, a big-time king, you start to get your own little realm, you might say. And this especially starts when you stop being a child and you turn 18. <laughs> I love hearing kids, you know, think, oh, when I turn 18, now I'm not a kid anymore. Now I'm an adult, right? But it's really when you leave home. Now you've got your own little kingdom. And it's not so easy, is it? You don't have mom and dad saying, eat your vegetables. You've got to do it for yourself. You've got to make sure that you're wise. And if you rule wisely in your kingdom... What do people start to do with you? They put you on a pedestal. You get a promotion at work. And all of a sudden, people are coming and saying, Hey, Mike, can you teach me something? What have you become? You're a prophet. You become a prophet. Okay? So this, this, these three stages of Israel, priests, kings, prophets, these are also the stages the, the kind of growth levels of a Christian, of any person, I think, for that matter. Now, if you know that, it can help you um, kind of just say, all right, I've got to play my role as a priest for a while. I don't get to just jump straight to level three, prophet. I've got to just be a priest. Got to be a priest. Got to follow the rules. Got to obey the book. Got to listen to mom and dad. Got to do what my boss says. And if I do that, I'll get a little wisdom and God, at the right time, will give me a little more power. I can become a king. Okay? Yes? Sure. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. The only, the only way to get rid of a prophet is to kill him. Yeah, I, um, I think you're right. When you look at Jeremiah, total loner figure. You know, Isaiah, um, all the prophets got killed. They didn't have happy, peaceful lives. Um, so when I say that we're all, eventually the goal is to be a prophet, I don't mean you're all going to end up as capital P prophets. But I think that there, this does kind of bear out in your life that God has different stages for you. And at different times different things are required of you, 
and different things uh, are possible for you. It's, it's not the job of Aaron to be a prophet. Aaron's just, you just got to follow the rules, Aaron. That's what the high priest does. He just follows the rules. And if he does that, then he gets some wisdom and he can move on to the next thing. Um, the problem here is sin. If you think of life this way, this also gives you a different slant on sin. Sin is interrupting this progression. So think of a rebellious kid. What does a rebellious kid never learn? He never learns wisdom. He never learns the rules. So when he gets out on his own, what does he do? He screws up his kingdom. And he certainly never gets to a point where he can influence the world for good. He can (laughs) influence it for a lot of bad. But you can see this, right? Um, What happens to a king? Take Solomon, for example. What happens to a king who kind of wrecks his kingdom through some, you know, with Solomon, it was all these women. He, nobody looks to him for guidance anymore, right? This is how sin, so sin causes these interruptions in this maturity phase, this maturation. Now, thankfully, there's forgiveness too, right? And so it's not like, hey, you messed up that one time when you didn't listen to your parents. You're just never going to be, a, you're never going to get out of the priest stage. You're always going to be a priest forever and ever. God gives second chances and he teaches us to grow through these things. Yes. Oh, yeah, he could just raise up some random prophet. There's, sometimes it doesn't, you don't even know the name of the prophet. It just says, a prophet of the Lord said this, right? Um, and what I'm, what I'm talking about is sort of tangential to that. Um, God, could, God could raise up one of us to do something amazing that would influence the whole history of America, okay? But more likely, right, more likely, our little prophecies are going to be within our own sphere. You know, the future of this congregation, the future of my own family, the future of of my business. This, yeah, yeah, this is what we need to do. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, just think of if, if you never grow out of this phase, if you've got a whole society that never gets out of priesthood, well, who's going to rule over you? It's not going to be wise rulers. What's the opposite of wise rulers? Wicked rulers, foolish rulers. And then, um, you know, you can see how that goes. Yes, Phil. Yeah, Aaron is a good example of this, right? Aaron's first kind of um, 
Aaron's, the beginning of Aaron's priesthood is abject failure. <laughs> you, you had one rule, man. Don't make any idols. Oops, I totally screwed it up, right? Um, but Aaron recovers. He's, he, he, I'm sure, was humiliated, and I'm sure he went through some pretty major soul-searching and repentance. How could I have done that? What a fool I was. Um, and his life changes. The prophets, too. Um, I mean, there's growth in every person's life. And, and oftentimes, the biggest growth is the, the biggest failure. The biggest setback is also the time of the biggest advance here. Yeah, of these three, who's the one that's got the most uh, possibility of success when somebody comes to beat up the kingdom? Somebody, another, another country comes over to, 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 take, people, to take people? Well, um, the, the king probably has the most sort of um, like military power. The, sure, the priest can, and, and all of these prophet, priest, and king, all of them are, need the Lord's guidance, right? Um, the prophets don't operate as, they're lone rangers in the sense that they're not working with anybody else, but they're working with the Lord. So any of these three offices, you've got to have the Lord's guidance. Um, but, you know, the quick answer to your question, if the Assyrians are coming to Israel, the king's job is to send out the army. Now, the prophet might step in and say, you know what, King Hezekiah, just relax. The angel of the Lord's going to come tonight and wipe out your enemies. So you could have that sort of um, help from outside the system. But working within the system, defense, defense is really a kingly job. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, you get the laws about who serves in the army. Um, I'm sure it was all written in the book. But the, the people under Moses and Aaron, you're not, they're not winning major battles. Joshua has to come. Joshua is kind of a bridge figure, you know. He do, Joshua is like a king, but you, he doesn't have a dynasty, but he's raised up like a king, and then they conquer the land through Joshua. But then they struggle in the book of Judges, and they, you know, that's why they want a king to come in and save them. Okay. Um, let's move on here from, I just wanted to get that uh, little seed planted in your mind. Priest, king, prophet, not prophet, priest, and king. Those, those distinctions are helpful when you think about Jesus, but I, I think it's just good in your own life, thinking through the maturity stages that God gives you. First, you're a priest, then a king, and then a prophet. Well, all of this just strikes me. I mean, obviously, this is very Old Testament, and then we have the intertestamental period, which is, what, three or four hundred years? Uh, four hundred, yeah. Yep. And we'll keep all of this and more. But I don't know, it just kind of boggles my mind about, uh, I, I mean, to a degree, it might be just like a child growing up in the different eras. Uh, mm -hmm. you know? So you have a lot of prescription here. And then when we get into the New Testament, I guess you might even say there's more adult responsibility on the individual. Yeah, well, you're supposed to use the Old Testament. Right? 
So this is why I always try to teach the Old Testament in Bible class, because one of the big problems for the church is always to say, hey, now we're in the New Testament. What do we do with two-thirds of the Bible? <laughs> you know, when we have this idea that Old Testament is old and doesn't really help us anymore, and we just have, how many books are there in the New Testament? 27, you know? We only have, if you try to work with just this much material, look how much you're leaving out. Okay, the, the old, that division that now the old has nothing to do with us, nothing to teach us, um, we've wa we want to get past that. Um, certainly we have to read things through Christ, and we don't live in Abrahamic time, uh, but the things that are written here are just as helpful as the things that are written here. And uh, it would be a big disservice to you as Christians if I told you, hey, only, the only thing that matters now is the New Testament, and this old stuff is just stories. It doesn't really teach us anymore. There's, there's not any wisdom to be gained anymore. Yeah, it was, it was Acts. You got to come to Bible class if you want the good stuff. If you want the Old Testament, you got to come to Bible class. Okay. Yeah, um, nobody struggles with um, that anymore. I mean, nobody would, nobody would ever have a affair. That wouldn't happen, right? <laughs> the, my, I'm just, I'm being sarcastic with you, Paul. But the uh, to point out, yes, as much as the times change, the the stories of the Old Testament are um, they are so relatable. Yes, they're like 4,000 years ago, which makes us think, wow, that's really different. But, um, you know, Abraham living amidst a, a group of people who aren't exactly his friends who, and waiting for the growth of the kingdom, that sounds a lot like our times. And seeing the overlaps, I think that's one of the fun parts of Bible study is just seeing, hey, this, my life is just like Abraham's. In, in very different ways, but there's a ton of similarity. My life is just like Isaac. My life is just like Jacob. Um, I face the same kinds of struggles, even if the details aren't identical. Right. Yeah, there is a little bit more of a need for, okay, I read an ancient story or the story of an ancient person. How, do it, how does that fit into my life? Whereas when you read the epistles, you just, you kind of get like timeless truth. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Forgive one another. Love one another. Be tenderhearted to one another. 
And that can seem like, well, that's more relevant to me. Um, but the more you sit with the stories and you reflect on them, I think oftentimes the stories do have a way of bringing out these truths that Paul teaches us to say, oh, it's, he's teaching the same things that God was teaching through Abraham. You know. Lorraine and then Catherine. Yeah, that's a great point. This is family history. You know, these, we are part of Abraham's family. So what happened to our father, our great, 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 whatever father um, is instructive for us, definitely. Catherine. There's a, a great little, um, you know, C.S. Lewis, the Narnia author. He wrote all kinds of good stuff, but he has this great um, statement in a preface to another book. So a preface to, who reads prefaces? Pastors do, right? Um, but he says, for every new book, you should read seven old books because they, you will read there things that don't make sense to you. It'll be a breath of fresh air. Um, and it's certainly, when you read the Old Testament, the things that motivate people, you, th you know, at first you think, what? why would he take Sarah to be his wife? You know, what was motivating that? Um, it's a different world in a lot of ways, but it's a breath of, from the outside, it's a breath of fresh air. And when you read scripture, of course, the breath is the breath of God, right? Um, but that's just a good rule. For every one modern book you must read, this is the 11th commandment, seven old books and you determine what an old book means um it's got to be at least a hundred years old to be old i think you know okay let's let's read genesis 21 so that we get at least more than one verse this discussion of priests and kings and prophets is great we can come back to it uh again but let's at least get through here we probably won't talk much about isaac but let's get a little more text down into our minds um so that it wasn't just all pastors uh, thoughts here today. Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. 
And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. What do you notice in those first couple verses there? Promise, 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 and fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. Just as God, as God, as God, as God. Over and over again in those verses, you get that repetition. He would, the author here, the Holy Spirit, wouldn't have to tell you Sarah conceived just as God said she would. He could have just said, Sarah conceived, Sarah had a son, Abraham called him Isaac, Abraham circumcised him. So it's not just for detail that God repeats those things. It's to emphasize something about the Lord. He is the promise maker and he is the promise keeper. Okay? Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Funny, right? This is, this is the, the part of the story where um, it's all happy here. Finally, Isaac is born. There's laughter for Sarah. There's laughter for everyone. Um, what seemed to be no hope of ever happening at last has happened. And let's remember, when, how long ago did Abraham's story start? How many years have passed? 25, right? Abraham was 75 years old when God called him. And now, 25 years later, he finally gets his son. Okay? I'm, that's almost my entire life. I'm 36, I think. Um, um, next year, I'll turn 78. Um, but these things, God could have done all of this right away for Abraham. But one of the things we find with Abraham is patience, patience faith that is patient, faith that is long-suffering. Okay? Next week, we'll talk about Ishmael. We're going to get another Ishmael and Isaac story here. So we'll discuss uh, Ishmael and Isaac next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you give us different stages of our life uh, to serve you in different ways and that each of these stages has different blessings. We pray that you would make us faithful priests and wise kings and influential prophets um, so that in everything your name would be hallowed, your kingdom would be promoted among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.